Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Hey, Proof listeners. I love kitchen gadgets that look cool and are a huge time saver. That's why the Sengoku Heatmate Graphite Grill and Toaster Oven is the perfect solution. This powerhouse packs in a ton of great features. The toaster comes with a handy grill rack, griddle pan, flat pan, and toasting net accessories. No need for oven mitts either, because the rack slides out when you open the door. You can cook, among many things, up to four slices of bread or one nine-inch pizza. And it'll cook them quickly with Sengoku's revolutionary graphite heating technology, which requires no preheating. Literally, it heats up in one second. No joke. The sleek retro design of the Sengoku Heatmate graphite grill and toaster oven is as easy on the eyes as it is easy to use. Check it out for yourself. Proof listeners can save 10% and get free shipping by using the code ATK10 at checkout. Just go to SengokuLA.com. That's S-E-N-G-O-K-U-L-A.com to order yours today. The most painful experience I've ever had with food took place in Nashville, Tennessee. If you're listening to this from Nashville, you know exactly what I'm going to say next. That's right, hot chicken. It happened at Prince's Hot Chicken, which is the most famous proprietor of hot chicken on earth. If you've never heard of hot chicken, it is exactly like it sounds. A very spicy fried chicken. And when I say very spicy, I'm talking fear factor level of spice. Like the type of unbearable heat 17 minutes into an episode of Hot Ones. I didn't even order the hottest chicken at Prince's. I went for the medium level. And because I had to wait 25 minutes for the chicken to come out, I took a He-Man size first bite. And let me tell you, huge mistake. It was this physical pain, this burning sensation that no amount of cold beverage could douse. And here's the problem. I didn't want to waste good fried chicken, and this was really well-fried chicken. So... I just kept eating, and it became increasingly excruciating until I finally tapped out. How can something so painful be so masochistically delicious? What if I told you the story of Nashville hot chicken was born from an accident, that the recipe was fueled by rage against a philandering husband? Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we bring you two stories about food you love to eat that began as an accident. Think the discovery of penicillin from the Petri dish, only more delicious. I'm Kevin Pang. Give me a tall glass of milk, quick, and stick around. Ever get a new kitchen gadget for a tricky recipe and think, um, this is useful in theory, but none of these buttons make sense? Am I going to be able to make this from scratch? Let the Jewel Oven's autopilot feature go from proofing to baking, and then baking to broiling, all with a single press of a button. The Jewel Oven is designed with 13 features, from air frying to dehydrating. 
And the Jewel app step-by-step recipe guides, which include recipes from ATK, make it easier to tackle tricky dishes the first time you make them. So aim high and make that goat cheese and herb stuffed chicken with confidence. Learn more about the Jewel oven at Breville.com. That's B-R-E-V-I-L-L-E dot com. Hey folks, you already know that at Proof, we love stories that change the way we think about food. And guess what? The companies that support our show are no different. Let's take a journey to Santa Isabel, Puerto Rico to meet Vinny Marti, a mango farmer. Puerto Rico, it's uh, in shape. It's like a rectangle. Uh, and we have a big mountain range in the middle. When you come to the southern part of the island, you arrive into a more arid, tropical part of it. This is perfect for mango growing. Despite living through devastating storms in 2017, Venny and his team are rebuilding, and they're producing some incredibly flavorful mangoes and getting them to the rest of the world. You know, after all the hard work, it's been a whole year on the farm. Happiest time is when we close those doors on the container and the container leaves for the port. Stay tuned as we tell you more stories about mango farmers and chefs who use mangoes in amazing, delicious ways. Learn more at mango.org. Our first story is a tale of revenge and hot chicken. Here's reporter Mackenzie Lunsford. Nashville hot chicken is now loved all over the world. But it all started right here, in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. And while there are so many imitators, Prince's Hot Chicken Shack is the original and is widely considered to serve the gold standard of hot chicken. At Prince's, the employees largely have a pretty healthy fear of the hottest chicken. They wear gloves, and they warn overeager customers who try to order the most scorching heat levels the restaurant serves. Is that a bad idea? I mean, I don't go past medium. Extra hot's a ghost pepper. So if you if you think you can take it on, you are nuts. Let's see, what do we have to cool that down just in case I lose it? We have so, ranch, honey mustard, blue cheese, and we also have, I mean, you can try a drink or a fountain drink. Ranch is the way. Do the fire extinguisher. Um, we might be able to find one in the back. The story of how precisely this dish was created, it's a bit contested. But what we do know is that it all started with the founder, Thornton Prince. Legend has it that Thornton Prince was a philanderer, a very, very busy ladies' man. It's a story that's been handed down through the family because my uncle, as I remember him as a little girl, that he was very jovial. He was like the Santa Claus type. And he's a people person, very outgoing and jolly. That's Andre Prince, Thornton Prince's grandniece. She's been the owner of Prince's Hot Chicken Shack since 1980. When you met him, you just immediately just fell in love with his beautiful smile. And he always had a big hat on. This is my memory as a little girl. He would always have his arms wide open and tall, good-looking, pretty as pretty as white hair. I tell you, we were always glad to see Uncle Thornton. The ladies were also glad to see Thornton Prince. I mean, they really, really loved him. 
Thornton's luck in love was the stuff of legend. He was married five times. The family doesn't know how many girlfriends he had. One day, Thornton left for, let's say, a night of fun. Annoyingly for his unnamed lover, she was left behind. Andre doesn't know whether this was one of Thornton's girlfriends or wives, but she told me what she thinks happened that night. So Uncle Thornton more than likely overstayed his night out on the town. And somebody who was at home waiting on him to come back more than likely became very, very frustrated. So they decided they were going to, hey, trick him. They didn't want to hurt his feelings by trying to talk to him because they might retaliate otherwise. So you got back at him with cooking. What better way can you get back at somebody by cooking? This unknown woman decided to enact her revenge by making a spicy dish out of chicken. This was the era of the Great Depression, a time of subsistence gardens and backyard chicken coops. So she likely would have made that meal from scratch. She may have even plucked that chicken herself. Imagine, she's stewing in her fury, tasting that spice rub from the hot peppers she likely grew herself, shaking her head, imagining the deliciously painful vengeance she would serve to her unfaithful man when he finally sat down to breakfast. It was a brilliant idea, really. When Thornton got home, he would taste. Ultimately, he would weep. He would throw himself at his lover's feet. He would beg for mercy. He would repent for his philandering ways. All would be forgiven. Maybe. After a whole lot of begging. After a whole lot of nights home where he belonged. But that's not how it went down. Andre explains. The more he bit into it and chewed it, the more he liked that fire. Have mercy. Oh, no more revenge. He liked it. He shared it with his friends over and over. And I'm sure when they first started out, he called his friends and whoever to try it. And hey, what do you know? Many years and chickens later, Thornton would go on to launch Prince's Hot Chicken Shack in 1945. And in doing so, he created a food phenomenon that would far outlast him. Uncle Thornton, my goodness, sharing his punishment. And here we are today, still beholding to his punishment, sharing it with the world. Thornton Prince ran his restaurant with his brothers as a side gig until he died in 1970, when his brothers took over. Andre Prince, Thornton's great-niece, took the reins in 1980, and she helped to lift the restaurant out of obscurity. But who really is behind Nashville Hot Chicken? Who was this jilted lover? I put the question to author Rachel Martin on a windy day. 
Rachel tried to dig up the jilted lover's identity while researching her book, Hot Hot Chicken, A Nashville Story. One of my goals with this book was actually to try to recover her name and story. We'll never know exactly who she was because we're not even 100% sure when the hot chicken business started. It was originally called the Barbecue Chicken Shack. Because of the way records were kept in the South, there's no way of knowing for sure when it began. Rachel said that because the Chicken Shack was a Black-owned business, it existed for a long time before it made it into the official archives. But I managed to find the names of multiple wives and a couple girlfriends along the way, and I hope she was one of them because she now has a biography in print if she was. And if she's not, I'm really sorry to, to her because I tried. But she really is the person who was behind this delicious accident. Uh, yes. She intended an act of revenge. She was going to teach this man a lesson. She was going to make sure that next time he went to cheat on her, his entire mouth would catch fire and he'd remember how bad it was. And that is not how that happened. In this hot chicken story, women have long quietly ruled the roost, it seems. Prince's original recipe was a tamer version of what Thornton's lover served him. He didn't want to punish his customers. But times have changed. Turning up the heat and crowing about it was Andre's idea, too. And now that searing heat is truly the stuff of legends. That is really what surprised me. More women eat it hot, extra hot than men. Men will try it, being the mantra type. But the fire in these women, they got it. It's the fire in us. One note, should you two make that pilgrimage, just be sure to wash your hands after you eat, or else you'll be the one experiencing Prince's lover's wrath. We have had people turn over the tables because it got in their eyes and, and they just go crazy. Have mercy, running out the door and trying to find the restrooms. According to Rachel's research, hot chicken largely stayed within Nashville's historically black neighborhoods for many years. But when Prince's Restaurant moved to the center of downtown, home of honky-tonks and country music stars, the smell of late-night chicken caught the attention of some very hungry performers. So while a lot of white Nashville did not know that this existed, it was actually really popular with the Grand Old Opry stars for about 20 years before the Opry moved out of downtown. It came into broader recognition because of one of Nashville's mayors, and that was Mayor Bill Purcell. I didn't want your food to get close, so I went ahead and brought it out for you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So it's two fries and a mac, correct? That's right. In Music City, Bill Purcell is well-known as the unofficial ambassador of Nashville Hot Chicken. He's also the creator of its very own festival, which has lasted for 16 years. Bill was the mayor of Nashville from 1999 to 2007, but these days, he practices law and teaches at Vanderbilt University. He also eats a lot of hot chicken. So we met up at Prince's for lunch. This makes me so happy. This yeah. is Prince's hot yeah. chicken as it should be eaten. Were you excited that this I said I wanted to get the hot chicken? Yes, I knew then this was a serious story. <laughs> There's no question that you are in the mother church of hot chicken. 
here at Prince's. It's not the original location, but it's currently the headquarters and the single best place to eat hot chicken on the planet. The former mayor's spicy chicken fandom helped launch it into an unlikely stardom in 2006, which also happened to be Nashville's bicentennial. Bill and his staff were searching for an idea for a festival to properly celebrate Music City culture. And so as mayor, I sat with my staff and said, what sort of festival should we have? And within seconds, I knew the correct answer. I don't always know the right answer, but I knew the right answer in this case, and that was we should have a hot chicken festival. And everyone in the room said, that's a great idea. It was not for many years, uh, in fact, very recently, that my former staff members acknowledged that at the time, they thought it was the worst idea I had ever had. Bill's idea paid off. Hot chicken has even caught the attention of royalty, or at least the royalty adjacent. One day, Bill got a call from the United Kingdom. And the call came asking, would I like to meet Tom Parker Poles, who was at that time described as then Prince Charles's girlfriend's son. Tom Parker Bowles is also a food writer and critic. And now, I guess royalty, since his mom is now the queen consort. But he was willing to make the trip across the pond to eat with Bill, even though the former mayor warned him ahead of time that Tom... This ain't chatting food. So we went to the original Prince's Hot Chicken location. Met there, he's a charming, good guy. Who immediately said, I will have the extra hot. And I said, oh, don't do that. He said, oh no, I'm having the extra hot. I said, no, no, this is a hot chicken shack, don't do that. He said, I'm having the extra hot. And I thought, well, you're Prince Charles's girlfriend's son. You get to have what you want. So we did. The stunt would actually end up in Tom Bowles' book, The Year of Eating Dangerously. The author devoted two full pages to the pain he endured. Bowles later called Prince's Chicken the Dolly Parton of deep-fried poultry in Esquire magazine. And honestly, I'm not sure what that means. But he did admit that at one point it hurt even to think. He wrote that... He thought well, his neck compressed, his, he couldn't breathe. His, it was a, a kind of a tortuous discussion of how he felt when he was eating next to hot chicken. But Incredibly, Bowles would go on to say that Princess serves up some of the best damn fried chicken I've ever eaten in my life. He's not wrong. But Prince created more than a dish for the daring when he stumbled upon this recipe. He also helped Nashville develop its very own culinary identity. So do you think that Prince's recipe inadvertently helped get the word out about Nashville and Nashville food? Well, I, I do think that, that Prince's Hot Chicken, as it's moved around the world, has advanced the brand of Nashville. The truth is that while we're the music city, and we are, and all kinds of music are it's created here, performed here, recorded here, it's only Nashville Hot Chicken that actually has the word Nashville in the name. Around the world, it's known as Nashville hot chicken. So if you go to Bangkok, Thailand now, there are three Nashville hot chicken restaurants. It's called Foul Mouth. If you go to Australia, there are two Nashville hot chicken restaurants. I was in Vancouver, Canada this summer, and the third item on the menu uh, in the restaurant that I first stopped in was Nashville hot chicken. It just opened a Nashville hot chicken restaurant in Kuala Lumpur, 
I haven't had a report on it, but it's just now open. So there are people around the world that know specifically of Nashville as the place where they make that hot chicken. And they are celebrating it, I think even as we speak, <laughs> worldwide with their taste buds on fire. At Assembly Food Hall, where there's another location of Prince's Chicken Shack, I run into Nashville, Tennessean reporter Brad Schmidt, who's ordering some medium spice chicken. At age 57, he says, he knows what's good for his stomach. So for a long time, I was a hot guy, and here's why. You may have heard of uh, former Mayor Bill Purcell, who elevated the hot chicken to all over Nashville about 10, 15 years ago. We went to the original Prince's location, and I ordered medium hot chicken. And the mayor said to me, Brad Schmidt, come outside with me and let's read the sign on the outside. Does this say Prince's medium chicken shack? Does it say Prince's mild chicken shack? No, it does not. Now go back in there and adjust your order accordingly. I, however, decide to live dangerously and I order the extra hot chicken. This bad boy is dusted with ghost pepper, which is one of the hottest peppers in the world. You can feel it in your sinuses when you smell it. Ghost peppers can be up to 400 times hotter than the relatively meek jalapeno. Do I want to show up the British food writer? Yes. Yes, I do. All right. Better get in there. Bon appetit. You ready? Well, now, what have you ordered again? I've ordered extra hot. And I'm going to try it. Sweet Jesus. Please help us all. That's good. Well, yeah, it's good. It's really good. It's really hot. It's really, really hot. (laughs) It's just really hot. But I'm just going to keep eating. Oh, my God. I'm going to power through. Okay. It's your turn. God bless. It's your turn. Listener, I did not die. Nor did my throat close up. I liked it to tell the truth. Perhaps I have iron taste buds. And perhaps Andre's right. Women seem to really, really like that fire. We can handle it. So I've polished off about half of my extra hot chicken. And though I am sniffling, as you can hear, I have not died. I have not made any wild faces or pounded on anything. I've barely created a spectacle at all. Would you agree, Brad? I do agree. I do agree. You are handling it much better than most. I think women actually are just quite tough. Here we go. go. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that. There's a reason that men don't give birth. We couldn't handle it. Just saying. Perhaps Thornton Prince had iron taste buds, too. Because if he'd succumbed to his lover's act of revenge, if he'd been a wimp about it or thrown himself at his lady's mercy, it's possible this now worldwide phenomenon would have never seen the light of day. Well, this is hot, but it definitely builds. So, as the story goes, this recipe was actually created by a woman who never gets any credit. What do you think of that? I have talked to the the prince's ancestors, and they know enough about the philanderer in question who was to be punished with this spicy chicken. They have enough details that I 100% believe that it's true, that hot chicken was born out of resentment and anger, and a need for revenge. Yeah. Yeah, the philandering guy 
came home and the the loyal wife says, oh, I made you some chicken, dear, putting in the spiciest peppers she could find. And halfway through it, he goes, this is the most delicious chicken I've ever had. And did not sweat even a little bit. So was, was it a delicious accident? Well said. You have your headline. After the break, we take you to Cereal City. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and cleanup afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice-controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Cooking during the holidays can be stressful. Lots of family, lots of dishes to make. So there's nothing worse than using bad kitchen tools to get the job done. Make it simple this year with OXO. Their cutting and carving board provides the perfect stability when you're carving into that roast because of the non-slip feet that keeps the board in place. You can also avoid slippage with OXO's easy-to-grip mixing bowls. Go ahead, let those younger chefs mash and stir the potatoes to perfection. And serve up the feast with OXO's steel-serving tongs. Elegant, ergonomic, and best of all, dishwasher safe. Proof listeners can get 15% off their holiday must-haves when you use the code ATK15 at OXO.com. That's ATK15 at OXO.com. Hey, Proof listeners, we've got fun news to share with all of you. We're excited to announce that we're making a new show for Amazon Freebie. America's Test Kitchen, the next generation, sees 11 home cooks from across the country working inside the ATK studio kitchens, undergoing intense culinary challenges in the job interview of a lifetime. The last cook standing will earn a starring role on America's Test Kitchen and $100,000. Celebrity host Jeannie Mai Jenkins is joined weekly by a rotating panel of your favorite ATK team members, including Dan Souza, El Simone Scott, Jack Bishop, and Julia Collin Davison. Catch the premiere America's Test Kitchen The Next Generation on December 9th exclusively on Amazon Freebie. That's Amazon's free ad supported streaming service. And as a bonus, we're excited to also announce Amazon Freebie will host brand new ATK holiday content on their exclusive ATK streaming channel. You can watch this content and more for free on the Amazon Freebie standalone app or on many connected TVs and devices, including Fire TV, Roku, Samsung, and mobile. Both Prime and non-Prime members can watch Freebie programming for free through Prime Video. Our next story about delicious food accidents takes us to south-central Michigan, to the town of Battle Creek. It's a lovely town, mostly known for one thing. Have a bowl of cornflakes, spoon them from the dish, touch the rooster, make a wish with cornflakes. Welcome to Cereal City. Reporter Brandon Summers-Miller picks up the story of the Kellogg brothers and the birth of cornflakes. 
Growing up in the small town of Battle Creek, Michigan, history often felt far away. It was only once I grew up and looked back that I realized smelling the air and guessing what cereal was being made that day wasn't a normal childhood game for anyone outside of my hometown. If the wind smelled fruity, it had to be Post's Fruity Pebbles. If you walked outside and it had a pungent, sugary smell, then it was definitely Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. I now know this game was the end result of a long, complicated, and dramatic history that forever changed breakfast in America. The story begins during the Progressive Era, when new advances in food and science, anti-corruption efforts, and religious reform were all capturing the American imagination. The Progressive Era sought to address problems from the rapid industrialization that happened during the years before. This was a time that saw huge advancements in science, health, and wellness, and naturally diet became a huge part of the conversation. You also have a huge domestic science movement, which is, you know, making cooking and women's work more efficient. That's Casey Highsmith, who studies food history at the University of North Carolina and works at the Museum of Food and Drink. That is all tied into the progressive era and these kinds of reforms. And then a few really big, important federal acts that came about at this time. The Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, for instance, banned the sale of misbranded or adulterated food and drugs. It laid the foundation for the FDA, or the Food and Drug Administration. And the Volstead Act of 1919 and 1920 outlawed alcohol and ushered in the era of prohibition. Religious activists were intent on improving social conditions, health standards, prioritizing sanitation, and cleansing society of its errant ways. People began applying Christian beliefs to public policy, and although temperance was sort of the religious movement's crowning achievement in shaping the national diet, there were a lot of other ideas that gained support. This is where the Kellogg family comes into play. Two brothers, John Harvey and William Keith Kellogg, were active members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. John Harvey had established himself as a very important member of the congregation. He positioned himself as a forward thinker during the Progressive Era, and he even had his own aesthetic of dressing in a white suit, head to toe, every day. Younger brother W.K. often lived in his brother's shadow, working as his bookkeeper and personal assistant. The church they belonged to was founded during the Third Great Awakening on the idea that the mind, body, and spirit are all interconnected. The church still exists today, and their religious diet includes eating vegetarian, abstaining from alcohol, and cutting out stimulants like caffeine and sugar. The Seventh-day Adventist Church encouraged people to stick to anaphrodisiacs, or foods that are meant to dampen a person's sexual desires. The idea, according to Casey Highsmith, was that eating anaphrodisiacs would create fewer worldly distractions and better connect the body and spirit to God making sure that what you eat and drink are not going to mess up your ticket into heaven. John Harvey Kellogg became central in promoting the Seventh-day Adventist way of life in Battle Creek. The Kelloggs had been prominent members of the church, and John would go on later in life to speak, on occasion, to the entire congregation. The church saw his promise and intelligence and urged him to attend medical school. They even funded his tuition— Younger brother W.K. was less in the spotlight. A lot that's written about his early days pointed to the fact that he only obtained a sixth-grade education and was a broom salesman. 
The dynamic between the two brothers was one where John Harvey kind of pushed W.K. around. According to some accounts, John Harvey treated W.K. as a subordinate and even treated him as a personal valet. Don Schrenzel, the director of the historic Adventist Village and Dr. John Kellogg Discovery Center in Battle Creek, explains. He liked to ride his bike to work. But he thought riding that bike would be a waste of time unless he was working. So he'd have his secretary, who was many times his younger brother, Will, come over to the house. John would get on his, motor, on his bicycle, and Will would have to run alongside of him taking dictation so that he didn't waste any of that time. W.K. will become a bigger character later in our story, but for now, John Harvey takes center stage. In 1866, one of the church's founders, Ellen White, had a vision from God to open a facility to promote the Seventh-day Adventists' way of life. They called it the Western Health Reform Institute. According to the Historical Society of Battle Creek, the place was designed to be a, quote, water cure and vegetarian institution where a properly balanced God-fearing course of treatments could be made available not only to Adventists, but to the public generally. The Seventh-day Adventists tapped John Harvey to become the institute's superintendent. They had, after all, bankrolled his medical school education. While John Harvey initially declined, he actually just kind of wanted to do research. He eventually caved. John Harvey took the superintendent post and went on to direct the Institute's medical program in 1876. John Harvey was now referred to as Dr. Kellogg. The Institute would be, quote, a place where people learn to stay well. A lot of people were coming there. They were having um, constipation problems because of their diets. They weren't eating fresh fruits and vegetables. They were eating all fats, uh, foods that are, would just clog up your system. So John Kellogg was big into actually enemas to, to clean out the colon. He thought the colon was one of the places where most people's diseases started. In addition to the yogurt enemas, Dr. Kellogg saw the opportunity to integrate the church's beliefs with the general public's newfound interest in health and wellness. Part of his vision included changing the name of the Health Reform Institute to the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Before this, the word sanitarium didn't exist. Dr. Kellogg invented it from the word sanatorium, which referred to a facility where people who had chronic illnesses, like tuberculosis, were treated before a cure was discovered. Kellogg's new word meant a place of healing and living, not decaying and dying. So... The Battle Creek Sanitarium is effectively the OG wellness center that we see today. You know, Kellogg, for all intents and purposes, is a wellness influencer. Food historian Casey Highsmith again. So you have all of these different people realizing that these dietetics, these different therapies were an option and they were they were really cool and kind of uh, marketed that way. And you have some really hype words, like one of the phrases I think they used was biologic living which was like, I I can't think of an an equivalent for today, but there surely is. Dr. Kellogg's medical ideas were fairly forward-thinking for his time. He was one of the first people to really openly talk about intestinal flora. And that was where the hydrotherapy and all those different things came into his mind and uh, yogurt enemas. So, you know, he wasn't entirely wrong in a lot of it, but it was all packaged in this very religious kind of trappings. 
Kellogg is building on this work in an era of new regulation and marketing, which allows him to spin the kind of language he uses to take it away from pure religious language into this body morality and making you have a better American body that allows you to be the best American you can be. Later in life, John Harvey Kellogg would extend this ethos to the realm of eugenics. But for the most part at the San, the focus was on healthy living. Ready, begin. At the San, Dr. Kellogg introduced exercise, light therapy, hydrotherapy, stressed the importance of fresh air, and helped people quit smoking and drinking alcohol. A guest's stay included three meals a day. All of them adhered to the Seventh-day Adventist diet. That meant no sugar, no coffee, no alcohol, and nutritious plant-based meals with lots of grains. The problem was that these fibrous grains weren't particularly easy to chew. They were traditional cereal grains people had been eating for thousands of years. Oats, wheat berries, hard corn, and the like. But they're harvested seeds from grasses. And if they're not cooked thoroughly, they're hard like popcorn kernels. Don Schrenzel explains. At the sanitarium, a lady came and she broke a tooth. And she wanted John Keller to give her $10 to fix her tooth. Well, John Kellogg thought, you know what? There's a lot of people that have bad teeth. So let's create something that they can eat that'll be easier on the teeth. Initially, the sand served a porridge-type product. Dr. Kellogg describes it in his comprehensive book on the sanitarium as, quote, half-cooked, pasty, dyspepsia-producing breakfast mush. Sounds tasty, right? But Dr. Kellogg wanted something more palatable. So the story goes that he recruited his brother, W.K., to help him with R&D. They also had help from Dr. Kellogg's wife, Ella, who directed the Sands Kitchen program. The Kellogg's experimented with making a more or less solid version of the half-cooked mush, which contained coarsely ground wheat berries, the seeds of wheat that are ground into everyday flour, and hydrated them in water. This wheat mixture was then forced through rollers in a machine and processed into long sheets of dough. What happened next is debated, but what is known is that one day in 1894, the Kellogg's were called away after the wheat mixture had been made. When they returned, they noticed that the dough had hardened and was almost stale. They decided to run it through the rollers anyway. Don Schrenzel picks it up from here. He had this surprise that there was a flake, but he didn't know how he made it. So then he got his younger brother, Will, involved with it, and so this time they were writing down all their research. Dr. Kellogg tasked W.K. with reverse engineering the process to recreate his success. Today, food scientists call this process tempering, but this was the first time anyone had documented its use. After tempering, the dough was much more stiff, and that's why it broke into flakes. So, out of pure, dumb luck, a brand new type of cereal emerged. It wasn't at all what he'd been trying to make, a soft paste of grains for people with fragile teeth. The dough broke into flakes, and Dr. Kellogg thought to himself, why not toast them? While testing, W.K. found the flaking process worked incredibly well with corn. So corn became the main ingredient for their signature flake cereal. And just like that, 
the Kelloggs had their own anaphrodisiac invention that softened even further when soaked in milk. The first cereals weren't marketed as a pour-and-eat convenience food as we think of them today. It was less about convenience and more about health. So the marketing language wasn't about ready-to-eat, you know, eat this right before you run off to work. It was very much centered around health and morality and purity. Everything goes back to morality. The success around this brand new food and the attention and reputation that came with it drew contention within the Kellogg family. The exact details are lost to history, but there are competing claims as to who actually discovered the flaked cereal making process. Today, W.K. Kellogg is widely remembered as the person who really cracked the code. Ella, however, contested that she was the one who actually solved the mystery. This in-law argument was one of the first documented souring points in the brothers' relationship. In his writings, John Harvey wrote that, quote, the great food industries of Battle Creek were all direct or indirect outgrowths of Ms. Kellogg's experimental kitchen. Even then, the success of creating an entirely new form of cereal was quickly overshadowed by disaster. The Battle Creek Sanitarium still exists. Well, sort of. The building is still there. However, it's not the building cornflakes were accidentally made in. Just a few short years after the Kellogg brothers' discovery, the original complex of wooden buildings that housed the sand burned to the ground in a spectacular fire. Determined as ever, Dr. John Kellogg petitioned the church to build a new sanitarium. This one would be bigger, bolder, better. And it would be made of fireproof materials like limestone, brick, and steel. Today, the federal government owns the building that housed the sand, and tours are open to the public. I got one with Jeff Landenberger. Uh, he redesigned the six-story building, which we call the original structure today because it's what's standing. It's concrete and steel. He didn't want any wood in here. He didn't want another fire. Jeff says that Dr. Kellogg spared no expense for his new sanitarium. He wanted the best to attract the wealthiest guests possible. He was a stickler for details, down to the finest specifications. He had pillars brought in from Minnesota that were quarried over there for the large pillars. The floor in the main entrance is an Italian terrazzo, and it's said to be done by the same people that did the floor in the Library of Congress. He had chandeliers brought in from Czechoslovakia for two different places, the Grand Lobby and for his Venetian dining room. That room also had paintings done by the Hudson Company out of Chicago in 1928, and they're still viewable today. This shiny, new version of the sand really began to attract wealthy guests. The sand had already made a reputation for itself as a place of healing and innovation, but this new era marked the beginning of massive public interest. Staying at the Battle Creek Sanitarium became a place to both see and be seen, Anyone who was anyone went to the sand. Some of the guests that we know that came here that were wealthy and well-off were Amelia Earhart. Obviously, she came from aviation. Henry Ford would have came here, uh, automotive industry. J.C. Penney, sales. Edison's came here. Harvey Firestone, tire manufacturer, came here. And also the first, I think his name was Johnny Weismiller. He was the first Tarzan from the movies. He was also a patient here at one time. Other confirmed names on the guest list include John D. Rockefeller, 
President Howard Taft in CW Post. With the upper echelon of society in attendance, at this state-of-the-art luxury health resort in my small hometown in southwest Michigan, the SAN also presented an opportunity for networking among titans of industry. Some people came here not because they were sick, but because they wanted to rub shoulders with Harvey Firestone, with J.C. Penney, with Rockefeller. That was their chance. We call it today an elevator speech. When you meet someone and you want to pitch your business, they could have came here and doing the same thing. The Sands' new building featured all sorts of modern and bold design choices by Dr. Kellogg, which weren't in the plans the church had signed off on. He wanted his patients to have fresh air, so he had outdoor walking facilities for them on roofs of the building and to make it more of an interesting view. He believed that you should get sunshine. He believed in the plants and the fresh air so much, though. He had a room called the Palm Garden Room. In that room, he had water features and plants inside the building. It had a glass dome ceiling. So even in Michigan in January and February, when it's super cold, you could go in there and get fresh air around uh, plants. And he even grew banana trees in that room. When the Seventh-day Adventist church realized that the new sanitarium was much grander than what they had agreed to, church elders were furious. At this same time in history, Dr. Kellogg published several of his personal beliefs on God, which directly contradicted the church. The sand's grandeur was the final straw, and they excommunicated him from the church. Despite this, Dr. Kellogg was undeterred, and the sand continued to grow in size and reputation, and that included his flaked cereal invention. Guests who stayed at the sand fell in love with cornflakes. People thought that this could be the fix for their body, right? Casey Highsmith again. They thought that by eating this, they could change the way they looked or change the way they felt or be like these, you know, affluent, well-to-do wellness influencers of that era. At the time, they were only available to sanitarium guests and were called Sanitas Toasted Corn Flakes. The Sands guests couldn't get enough of them. In fact, after they'd return home, they would mail order Sanitas Toasted Corn Flakes for delivery. The San ended up creating an entire health food store on-site which processed the orders and quickly numbered into the thousands. While Dr. Kellogg was content with keeping flaked cereal a proprietary product, W.K. knew there was a huge opportunity to sell beyond the San's former guests. Dr. Kellogg wouldn't even bother entertaining the idea, and this would create another rift in their relationship. As the sand continued to flourish, Dr. Kellogg wanted to focus on his health resort and morality. He's fighting against becoming part of that industrialization and the corporatization and capitalism effectively, despite the fact that he clearly wants to make money from his sanitarium at the same time. WK, though, wanted to capitalize on the public's interest in new, exciting manufactured foods. And then you have his younger brother, who is also hearing this hype, but also knowing how the American public eats and knows that they should probably add sugar to it. And because sugar is becoming readily available, sugar, of course, as we know, is also a stimulant and makes our brains want to eat more of whatever we're eating. And so I think his younger brother had a little bit more of a finger on the pulse of the American diet preferences at the time. So that created this rift. 
While Dr. Kellogg was excommunicated from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, he was still promoting their anaphrodisiac diet. No stimulants of any kind, including sugar. W.K.'s insistence to sell to the general public was a mere annoyance. The suggestion to add sugar, however, flew directly in the face of God. Although Dr. Kellogg was holding out, copycats quickly sprang up in his place. One of the Sands guests decided to capitalize on the market Dr. Kellogg sought to avoid. This guest carefully stole the flaked cereal technique from him in 1904. Here's Jeff Landenberger. There's a lot of stories about C.W. Post's stay here and the reason he came here. But what we know as facts is he was here as a patient and he saw the cereal being made. We've been told he asked Dr. Kellogg how it was made and Dr. Kellogg, wanting the world to be a healthier place, shared with him how the cereal was made and why they did it this way. And C.W. Post learned all he could about the making of cereal and went into business for himself. Post had already been in business making dry foods in Battle Creek. After his stay at the sand, he released a new flaked corn product, Elijah's Manna, which was quickly renamed Post Toasties. When W.K. learned of Post's backhandedness, he was livid. C.W. Post's opportunism proved to W.K. that he'd been right all along. In 1906, 12 years after he's credited with discovering how to intentionally make flake cereal, W.K. quit working for his brother and started his own cereal company, the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company. After a lifetime of being in his brother's shadow, W.K. now had something he could call his own. In 1908, W.K. renamed the company after himself, and that's the Kellogg Company we know today. So the Kellogg Company we know today is not necessarily connected to the doctor that is part of the like mythology of the cornflake, which I, I find just so hilarious. Renaming the company after their shared last name resulted in a bitter legal battle between the Kellogg brothers. Dr. John Harvey thought his younger brother didn't have the right to use the family name, but the Michigan Supreme Court did. Adding further fuel to this bitter and embroiling fire, W.K. added sugar to cornflakes. Corrupting cornflakes' original religious and aphrodisiac purpose and stealing the family name was the final straw. Despite living in the same small city in southwest Michigan, the two brothers would rarely speak for the 37 remaining years John Harvey was alive. W.K. was wildly successful and became a serial tycoon. He not only made his own company, which today is valued over $24 billion, he also built an entire industry based on an invention he helped create. Dr. John Harvey, spurned by his brother, continued to serve as the Sands medical director until it almost went bankrupt during the Great Depression. He sold the Sands' beautiful facility to the federal government, which turned it into a military hospital. John Harvey Kellogg spent the remainder of his life promoting eugenics through his own foundation, which went bankrupt in 1967. Go figure. The Battle Creek Sanitarium put my hometown on the map. 
After the Kellogg Company was created, Battle Creek became so well-known that then-President Howard Taft rode by train to give a speech in Battle Creek in 1911. Someone, thankfully, took a picture. To the right of Taft, you'll notice two men who are seated. One of them is C.W. Post, wearing a hat and an overcoat. And the other is Dr. Kellogg, in his standard all-white. Between the two men is an empty seat with a white hat on it. The hat belonged to Dr. Kellogg. Local lore says that after everything that had happened, Post's thievery, W.K.'s betrayal, Dr. Kellogg hated Post so much that he intentionally put his hat on the seat between them so they didn't have to sit right next to each other. Today, the legacy of these two serial dynasties is still strong in my hometown. Tons of families in Battle Creek identify either as a Post family or a Kellogg family. My grandpa helped load up the first shipment of Kellogg's Pop-Tarts in 1964. My dad and grandma also worked in Kellogg's corporate headquarters. So, we're a Kellogg family, through and through. Some of my friends, however, are part of Post families. This isn't a rivalry amongst people in the town, but in some ways it's an incredibly niche reminder of the history of cereal and the small group of individuals who shaped a global industry. Each year, the cereal industry uses hundreds of millions of pounds of sugar. And it all started with a vision from God to help people become healthier and ended with a delicious accident we eat every morning. Thanks to Mackenzie Lunsford and Brandon Summers-Miller for bringing us today's stories. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Kern Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik, and additional engineering by David Bowman, Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Rachel Martin and Andre Prince for speaking to Mackenzie about hot chicken history. Thanks also to Bill Purcell and Brad Schmidt for sitting down for a spicy meal. Special thanks also to Casey Highsmith, Don Churensell, Jeff Landenberger, and Mark Benke, who spoke to Brendan for our story on cornflakes. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Sengoku, The Mango Board, and Breville. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.